Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, just want to let you know that we are on to the U.S. Senate runoff in Georgia. To do your part, go to jointheunion.us. That's jointheunion.us and help put a good man back in the United States Senate and make sure an unserious candidate does not go there. Go to jointheunion.us and help out in Georgia. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm once again coming to you solo for a special post-midterm, post-mortem edition of the podcast to answer the questions that come from you, the listeners and members of the Lincoln Project community. Rick, Stu, Joe, and I, and everyone at the Lincoln Project love hearing from you all. And as always, if you have a question, please do not hesitate to ask podcast at lincolnproject.us. Leave your question for us. Before we get started, I just want to say thank you to everybody for all you did this election cycle, for your support of our efforts and for getting out there and voting, knocking on doors and making your voices and your work felt. So with that, let's get into some of your questions. Let's talk a little bit about the midterms, the continuing midterms and some polling. Kathleen Zeiser asks, how does the Lincoln Project plan to get involved in the Georgia runoff and how can listeners and LP supporters get involved? Well, Kathleen, first and foremost, go to jointheunion.us. Our union team is already shifting their resources and their time and their focus out of places like Nevada and Arizona and over to Georgia. And so, you know, you'll be able to find all the information you need there. You can go to Power the Polls if you live in Georgia and you're interested in serving as a poll worker or Vet the Vote if you're a veteran who's interested in getting involved in the mechanics of the election. I know they need a lot of help. If you are on the ground, again, you can knock on doors, make phone calls, send texts, whatever it might be. Look, guys, I feel good about Senator Warnock's chances against Herschel Walker. I think that there was probably a fair amount of Republican voters that went to Walker because they were voting for Governor Brian Kemp in his reelection campaign against Stacey Abrams. It'll be interesting to see what Kemp does here. My guess is he'll want to stay out of this race because he probably doesn't think much of Walker, candidly. He and Trump don't get along anyway, so you know he's happy to stay out of it. I think it sort of burnishes his credentials as a quote-unquote normal Republican, which you know, look, after the bills he signed in 2021 vis-a-vis voting, he's always going to have a big asterisk next to his name. I think also without other things on the ballot, with this is going to be the only thing, there's going to be more money and more people and more everything else. I think that, you know, for Democratic voters, it's important to pick up another seat in the United States Senate for the Democratic majority. That's probably not a message that really appeals to independents and Republicans. I would say that asking those kinds of voters, what we call our Bannon line, as you've heard before, about the character of these two men. If you had to choose between these two to frankly do anything, would you choose Senator Raphael Warnock or would you choose Herschel Walker? Would you choose someone who was 
a highly regarded and respected pastor at the same church where MLK preached and is now a United States senator and has acquitted himself beyond well in that role? Or do you want someone who is amoral, who is unserious and unprepared for the role of United States senator? I think that's what Walker is. He is not a serious candidate. He is the Trump effect in effect. He cleared the field for Walker, right? McConnell had no chance to put in someone normal. Someone normal in this race probably beats Warnock. But with the headwinds and a strong top of the Republican ticket, Warnock still came within just about half a percent of getting through the runoff. And I think if we look back, we should assume that establishment Republicans will probably lay off Walker. They probably want nothing to do with him. My guess is McConnell will want that vote, but he probably doesn't want Walker. But that's a catch-22 for him, and I'm sure no one really feels bad for him. So let me just say this. You would be able to walk across Georgia from one side to the other on all of the dollar bills that will be spent on television advertising between now and December 6th. But I think it's going to be on the ground, voter turnout, coalition building, and reminding people that there's a runoff because a lot of times there's a drop-off in participation. It's a month after. It's right after Thanksgiving. It's before Christmas. People are trying to tune into something else. And so I think that the turnout operation that I believe the pro-democracy coalition can bring to bear, I think will help Senator Warnock get over the line. Okay. Oko Bohm Hagedorn, and Oko, I hope I pronounced your name correctly, said, in Wisconsin, why did Mandela Barnes lose to Ron Johnson for Senate, but Tony Evers was able to be reelected governor? Well, I think there's a couple of things that go into it. One is that Wisconsin is a very purple state. It has its share of very conservative areas, its share of very progressive areas. But a lot of people who are, you know, somewhere in that middle band of 65 or 70 percent of voters, maybe they consider themselves Republicans or Democrats. Barnes is a progressive. He's a self-avowed progressive, right? He had the likes of Bernie Sanders come in and campaign for him. And I think also we shouldn't underestimate the kind of campaign that Ron Johnson ran against him, which we knew he was going to do, which was coded language and dog whistles from start to finish. Barnes is an African-American, you know, so it was a lot of crime and, you know, them and they and all sorts of other language that is, you know, part and parcel of the Republican Party really for the last 50 or 60 years. But I think also, you know, Barnes had an opportunity and I would even say by necessity, he had to give moderate Democrats, independents and some soft Republicans a reason to vote for him. And I think a lot of them went into the polling place without thinking that he'd given them one. And I think, you know, a lot of times you got to ask for people's votes. If you don't ask for their votes, they're not often going to come your way. And so I think there was a, a variety of things on the Evers front. You know, look, we did a lot of work in Wisconsin. Tim Michaels, his opponent, was sort of quasi-Trumpy. He really got himself in trouble, Michaels did, when he got caught on video saying, if I'm governor, you know, no Democrat will ever win an election again in this state. And I think that just turned a lot of voters off. Did every Republican come across the line to Evers? No, but I bet a lot of them skipped that race and a lot of them, you know, enough came across the line for Evers, who is, again, you know, former superintendent of public education and ran a good campaign, good enough campaign to get across the line. All right. Janelle Lowy asks, now that we know the mainstream media covers junk polling, you know, polls that are put out by Republicans, they don't cost a lot, a lot of push questions where there's only one answer, which forms a false narrative, how can we contain the media and help them reflect the reality of what's happening in real time? Well, Janelle, let me say this, is that polling has been broken for a while. 
we're a long way from the days when everybody had a landline and everybody at home picked up that landline. And so I think that, you know, the people who are answering these survey calls are self-selecting. You know, anybody who's willing to spend 35 or 40 minutes on the phone with a pollster is somebody who has decided that's how they want to spend their time. If they ask you on a cell phone or if they call your cell phone, how many people actually pick up cell phone numbers that they don't know? And so, again, I think that the respondent pool is shrinking. It's probably older. It's probably disproportionately whiter. I think also there is, at least in the media-based polls, there's so many people who are scared to death to get it wrong again after 2016 that I think sometimes that they're oversampling. What I mean is they're asking more Republicans the questions than they are Democrats, which is skewing things. But the part that you ask about these junk polls that the media is eating up, you know, the idea of a quote-unquote push poll, right, where you ask the question, is the sky blue or do you think it's blue, right? There's only one answer to the question. This is nothing new in politics. The difference is, is that most of the time the media recognized them for what they were. But I think this is the first time in my experience where the entire Republican political set, the entire Republican sort of political media ecosystem all got together and colluded to basically push these crappy polls out, 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 out. And the mainstream media took them a hook, line and sinker, like I'm sure they thought they would. And so by, you know, early October, you've got, you know, this red wave starting. And it's all the idea to sort of depress Democratic turnout, convince them they can't win, but also set up the other side, which is if Republicans do lose in some close races, well, you could say the whole thing was rigged because look back at the polls. And so, Janelle, I think that a lot of the pollsters and I know a lot. They're very smart people. They do math way better than I do. They typically understand their craft very well, but it's clearly not working the way that we've expected it to going back to however many years we've been doing this horse race stuff. And so I think it's bad sampling, oversampling of Republicans, misunderstanding the nature of the electorate and the issues that they care about and how those issues relate to who they might vote for. You could say, I'm most worried about inflation as an issue and vote for a Democrat because the Republican was unacceptable. And I think that was something really hard for people to understand. But also, I want to use this expression, the weaponizing of basically made up surveys, fake polls to try and drive a media narrative, which the media should know better by now. But too often they don't. And this is something that we and everybody else that cares about this stuff is just going to have to push back on them and say, just because a Republican pollster sends you something doesn't mean you have to run with it. Maybe you should read it, ask for the survey questionnaire, ask for the cross tabs and say, is this something you guys really think is worth it? My guess is a lot of times it's not. All right, let's move on to election laws. Julie Moore asks, for the Lincoln Project, how important are election process issues like ranked choice voting and independent redistricting commissions and the overall fight for American democracy? To me, these sorts of issues seem like the natural response to restore the majority's voice in these outrageously gerrymandered districts. So, Julie, I worked in the independent and reform political space for about three years before I joined the Lincoln Project. And I will say this is that I helped pass. Prop 11 in California, which was the Independent Redistricting Commission out there. I helped pass Prop 4 here in Utah, where I live, which was an Independent Redistricting Commission, which the legislature just basically threw out and said, we're going to do what we want to do. I think a lot of these things are all good in principle. And I think that on the whole, I would rather have people who are not supposed to be connected to the process choosing how lines are drawn, you know, taking that stuff away from the hands of candidates 
We've seen Republicans have been masterful in their ability to draw their own lines. And I think we're seeing that in a lot of these really radicalized legislative chambers in very conservative states or even in the U.S. House with the Republican conference. Ranked choice voting, open primaries. Look, I think that stuff is, is all great. Some people hate it because it's hard to understand, and I get that. But I think the idea is, without ranked choice voting, really good chance to get Sarah Palin back in Congress up in Alaska. So I think that, you know, a lot of times these are top four primaries, which means that everybody in a primary election, Republicans, Democrats, whoever it is, they all run together. And the final four, or I think something going through now, maybe in Nevada, the final five top vote getters in a primary go on to the general election. And then you rank them one, two, three, four, five. And then there's a process that makes my eyes glaze over. But the bottom line is it's trying to get to a consensus of one candidate that has gotten over 50% support from enough of the voters that we can say, okay, this was the person we chose. In practice, it is supposed to give you the most broad-based candidate at the end because theoretically the extremes will get, let's say if it's a top four, the extreme Democrat will get a one from a Democrat and a four from a Republican and vice versa. The extreme Republican will get a one first place vote from a Republican and a fourth place vote from a Democrat. See, even as I'm trying to explain it here, it gets confusing. But the bottom line is it's supposed to drive candidates back towards the middle because they're not only trying to get those first place votes, right, those top vote getters, but try and get everybody's second or third place vote as they go down the list. Because if you get below a certain threshold, your name gets thrown out. And then ultimately, maybe you get somebody who is a little bit unexpected, but is more of a consensus choice. Eric Adams, the mayor of New York City, was elected through the ranked choice voting process. There might be a lot of people listening to this for whom that drives you absolutely crazy. I get it. But, you know, he is a, you know, even for a Democrat, probably a lot more moderate for a lot of New Yorkers than the other options they had. And so I think all of the reform stuff is good, but I think it's mostly good because it's at least an attempt, a good faith attempt to put power back in the hands of voters and take it away from the hands of politicians who have often either drawn their own lines or made the rules to protect themselves, their party. And both parties at the state level are mutual protection societies, right? Like they don't want new entrants. And so anything that breaks that down, I think is healthy for democracy. All right, let's talk a little bit about January 6th. Mickey Copperman asks, it seems like the GOP is going to take back the House, even though it's not the margins many Democrats were fearing. What is going to come of the January 6th hearings? I'm worried that the committee is going to be immediately dissolved and everything will have been for nothing. Well, Mickey, it looks as if we're recording this, that the Republicans will take a very narrow, perhaps three or four seat majority in the U.S. House. As I recall, the January 6th committee's mandate only lasted through the end of this Congress, so they would have had to re-up it anyway. But I will say this is that they will assuredly put out a comprehensive report before the end of the year. It would not surprise me if whatever it is they've collected, they're already preparing to hand over to the Justice Department. And don't underestimate its effect. And I think we could see this based on what we saw happen last week, which was I think there were a lot of voters, a lot of Americans who saw the January 6th hearings and were appalled by what they saw and what they learned. Because I think there were a lot of people who didn't really understand what Trump and his goons and all the people around him were up to. I think they thought that he just got everybody spun up on Twitter. These people all came to Washington, D.C., and they all just sort of spontaneously marched to the Capitol. And I think that what you saw was a really good 
illustration and exposition by the January 6th committee and Chairman Thompson and Vice Chair Cheney about how all of these different groups and different interests all conspired together. And they did conspire to keep Donald Trump in office. So I think that at the end of the day, even with a Republican majority coming, I think the January 6th committee more than did its job. I think it probably scared off a lot of Republicans like I used to be and said, if giving these guys another vote or giving these people more representation or more power is more likely to get us more behavior like Trump, like I'm out. But we should understand that the fight is just beginning. As we move forward here, gang, in the coming days, weeks, and months, the Republican Party in this country will get more extreme. They will get hotter. They will become more radioactive. Don't listen to what you see on cable news or what you hear from radio outlets or the mainstream media or anybody coming out of Washington, D.C., right? They all want the Republican Party to go back to normal. It ain't going to happen. Not anytime soon. And not as we sit on the precipice, as I'm recording this, of Donald Trump announcing yet another run for president of the United States. And so, guys, it was a big win on Tuesday, a big win, but a big win in a battle, part of a larger struggle. And so we cannot and must not ever forget that. I am your friendly neighborhood, Cassandra. If you want to feel good about things, I'm all for it. If you want to worry about things, give me a call. I'll tell you why we still got work to do. All right, looking ahead. At Wegsman on Twitter asks, we keep talking about the pressure the MAGA Republicans will put on a Republican speaker, especially with a slim margin. But what is the chance that moderate Republicans will put pressure in the direction of sanity? Uh, the chance of that is zero. There's not enough of them. They have not shown any backbone to date, and I do not expect that they will now because they will now immediately go in to figure out how to save themselves in two years and do everything they can to let the, you know, the wraiths that are the MAGA leadership, and that's what they are in the U.S. House, pass them by as they fly over their doors every night. And so I don't think we should expect anything out of moderate Republicans, and I'm not sure how many of them there will be left anyway. All right. Kim Callahan asks, what do the next two years look like if the GOP wins the House leading up to the general election in 2024? So again, it looks like, guys, as of right now, it's going to be a slim majority. This is what the Republicans will do. Kevin McCarthy is running for speaker. Guys, we've been saying this since March. I don't think he's got the votes. I don't think he's going to get the votes. I think that with, you know, a three or four seat majority, a lot of people will blame him for the poor performance that, frankly, Republicans showed when they thought they'd win 30, 40, 50, 60 seats. He's not a true believer. They all know he's not a true believer. He's not like an Elise Stefanik who brings the fervor of a convert to the mission. And so I think that if McCarthy becomes speaker, he will be led around by the nose. But it wouldn't surprise me if we hear before long that the leadership fight isn't going to go his way and he retires. He'll never move back to Bakersfield, I don't think. But my guess is he would leave Congress rather than be a two-time loser in a speaker's fight. But here's what we can expect. And they've told us, guys. And so these are the things you'll now see. Hunter Biden investigations between now and 2024 do everything they can to inject as much chaos and trouble, not only into Joe Biden's administration, but also into the country writ large. They will do things like shut down the government rather than agree to a debt ceiling increase. Why? Because they don't care, guys. The governance is not in their DNA. They don't care about any of this stuff. These are not the things they care about. I mean, listen, I got no particular love for lobbyists, but if you work in a lobbying shop in Washington, D.C. right now, like, how do you go to Paul Gosar's office and ask for something? Right? Like, how do you go to Marjorie Taylor Greene's office and ask for something? 
Like these people might be committee chairs. They will have enormous sway on Capitol Hill. And the normals, such as they are, the political bureaucracy of Washington, D.C., thinks they, they, oh, it'll just be, you know, we'll give them our $5,000 pack check and everything will be fine. Like that's, it's not going to be fine. These are bad people. They're nihilists. And in the mold of Steve Bannon, a lot of them are Leninists. They want to burn the whole damn thing to the ground so that everything is so topsy-turvy that a Donald Trump can accede to power once again in November of 2024, January of 2025, and, you know, create the world in their warped vision. And I say, no, thank you. And so we will do all we can to push back on these people because they do not have your interests at heart. They don't have their own constituents at heart, right? They follow a, a big golden cow who lives down in Palm Beach, and you know they will do what he asks them to because they are his people, and we should not forget that. All right, last question here, gang. Oliver Jackson asks, what is the biggest thing you learned during the 2022 midterms that you will apply to 2024? Now, Oliver, that is a great question. Let me back up a sec. You know, a lot of times, especially if you've been doing anything for very long, right, choose your industry. I'm in politics. Some people make cars. Other people are in tech. Some people run coffee shops, whatever it is like, oh, I know how to do this. I know how to do this. I know how to do this. I've seen it all. You know, and, and especially in campaigns, we can all become very easily swayed by the idea of like, we know how it's going to go. But let me say this. 2016 was a very different race from 2020. And 2024 will be a very different race from 2020. Yet, will Donald Trump be there? Most likely. Will Joe Biden be there? Most likely. Okay, so those are the two major variables that are now constants. Everything else, though, we don't know. No one could have predicted in March of 2020 that a global pandemic was going to sweep across the world. And so all of these things now happen, and they happen with such regularity and rapidity that the one thing it reminds me of, Oliver, is the need for preparation. We don't know what's going to happen, but we need to be prepared for it because, of course, preparation and opportunity equal luck. And, you know, we have been, I think, prepared, opportunistic, and lucky here at the Lincoln Project because we know our opponents, we prepare for what they might do, and we drill on this stuff, we practice on this stuff. And so when the thing that's unexpected comes up, that's good or bad, we're able to assess that and respond to it appropriately and often very quickly. A lot of the political world, you know, we'll get back to running for president in, you know, mid 2023 or whatever, and now we'll get going, but that's not how it's going to be this time, guys, right? The 22 cycle isn't over and 2024 is upon us. And so the other part too, Oliver, is, you know, we talked about this right after the 2020 campaign, and we've seen the fruits of it here in the wake of 2022, which is the need to consistently build on the pro-democracy coalition, right? It was an ad hoc coalition in 2020 that elected Joe Biden. We brought the union together, 62,000 volunteers, 70 plus organizations from across the country and across the political spectrum to ensure that everything that needed to be done on the ground for pro-democracy candidates could get done. We're going to grow that and expand that. I have never felt more strongly about something the beauty of having a guy like Rick Wilson at my side every day is that you never have to worry that the creative and the content is going to be anything less than the best in the world. Nobody else gets to say that, right? Everybody else is like, oh, yeah, the ad is sort of half-assed. Maybe people like it. We're lucky enough not to do that, right? Rick and his team make amazing content that really spreads the message and gives our people, the millions of you out there, 
the ability to talk to your friends, your neighbors, your colleagues, your families about really what's going on in this country and what's so important about making sure that we stay on the side of democracy. And so for me, it's just the idea that coalition building is so important. It's difficult. The coalition that was successful this year will atomize a little bit. We'll have to bring it back together and we'll have to grow it. We'll have to add on to it. But I've never been more sure of something in my life, which is here's the coalition that's been successful. Democrats, independents, enough Republicans like I used to be saying, this is the country we want, not what Donald Trump and the MAGA people are offering. We need to hold it together. We need to offer those people something. We also need to start providing a vision of what a post-Trump, post-MAGA world looks like. And I think that that's worth a lot of discussion and worth a lot of thought. But I think that you know we're not through this struggle yet by any stretch. But just like we saw with the other great struggles of our eras, right, of our times, you have to keep about half an eyeball out to the future and say, okay, once we get through this, what do we want the world to look like? And let me just say this, gang, I've said it before. The world will look different than it looked from the before times, whether that's before Trump, whether or not that's before COVID, right? The world is fundamentally changing. The paradigms by which so many of us grew up, came of age, everything else are breaking down. And the people that will succeed are the people that understand that. And the leaders will be the people who recognize that and are willing and able to provide and offer a vision of what the United States can and should be as we go and improve this great experiment. Well, everybody, look, I just want to say thanks as always again for your questions. They are always entertaining and enlightening to me to see what you all are thinking about. Again, you can always reach out to us, podcast at lincolnproject.us. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok at Reed Galen and on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Until next time, thanks so much. Thanks for a great election cycle. I'll see you soon. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. Also, be sure to check out our growing LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. We're speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. And Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Monday at noon Eastern. Plus, we'd love you to check out our newest show, The Game We're In, with Maya May and Trigby Olson, which airs Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter feeds. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.